To each of these charges, charge 1 to 51, how do you plead? Guilty or not guilty? Yes, guilty. This is one more extraordinary chapter in a case that made headlines across the world. This almost looks like things have been torn to little pieces. It's, it's exceptionally bad. It's weird. We've never seen anything like it. It seems like the world sort of stopped while we were all in lockdown. And certainly coronavirus was front and centre, but other stuff did happen. The government revealed the details of the cannabis referendum. Turkey and Russia announced a ceasefire in northwest Syria. Colorado became the 22nd US state to repeal the death penalty. And there was another environmental disaster in Australia. Hi, I'm Emil Donovan. And I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. And today we're talking about the other news. Some of the developments you may have missed while you were sleeping in. Let's start with the courts, because probably the only news item that pushed COVID off the front page in New Zealand was Brenton Tarrant's shock admission that he murdered 51 people at two Christchurch mosques last year. And that happened just over a year after he walked into Elnor Mosque, heavily armed, and in a little over six minutes, he killed 42 people. And then 10 minutes later, he arrived at the Linwood Islamic Centre and unable to find the entrance, began shooting from outside. Now, the 29-year-old Australian had previously denied the charges and he was due to go to trial this month. Then the bombshell. On Thursday, March 26th, this unexpected change of plea. His lawyers had only indicated on the Tuesday afternoon, so a couple of days beforehand, that he wanted to be brought before the court. The city's two imams were asked to come to the court to witness the proceedings on behalf of their Muslim communities. They didn't know what was about to happen. The victims knew nothing about it. He appeared by video link and these two imams representing the victims, their families, they were at the court as the registrar read aloud all the 51 murder victims named in the Crown charge list before asking Tarrant if he pleaded guilty or not guilty. To each of these charges, charge 1 to 51, how do you plead guilty or not guilty? Yes, guilty. And in total he pleaded guilty to 92 charges. Did he give any explanation for why this sudden change of heart? No, he didn't. Um, and there was no explanation given by his lawyers either during the hearing. Uh, th- this is just speculation, but commentators said at the time that it was likely to be deliberate, a kind of attention-seeking move on his part. And a lawyer who was working with some of the victim families, Arif Rashid, said they were not given any indication of why Tarrant changed his pleas to guilt. What he said was any possible explanations are speculative, but we do know terrorists are often seeking a sense of self-importance and attention to their cause. And he said the COVID-19 pandemic has removed that. It was a strange day that day, wasn't it, to be working in a newsroom? And it was like you had these two once-in-a-lifetime stories happening concurrently. Mm, Well, it, it was really effectively our first day of of lockdown and we really didn't know what was ahead of us and then this thing just came this shock news out of the blue and I think we were all saying why why did he do it and it's still it really isn't clear there's only speculation probably just as big a shock 
story to Australians out of court concerned Cardinal George Powell, who was, of course, formerly the third highest ranking official in the Catholic Church. This is one more extraordinary chapter in a case that made headlines across the world. It's crunch time for George Pell, the disgraced Catholic cardinal. He's just minutes away from finding out if he remains behind bars or walks from Barwon Prison. Pell has been in prison for 400 days, but he could be free for Easter. The High Court is set now, to hand Just as a reminder of this, Pell had had a lot to do early in his career with an infamous priest named Gerard Ridsdale, who was jailed in the 90s for many counts of sexually abusing children. And that association raised a bunch of questions about how much Powell, Cardinal Powell knew about Ridsdale's actions, whether Cardinal Powell had covered for Ridsdale, and eventually, after he was interviewed by the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse in the mid-2010s, questions were raised as to whether Powell himself had abused children. Um, now, in mid-2017, he was actually charged with multiple sex offences, and that was a really big deal, because at the time he was effectively the Vatican's treasurer. He was a really high-ranking official, the highest-ranking Catholic ever to be implicated in a case like this. Chief Justice Susan Kiefel uh, came to the bench. She was there for less than 60 seconds. All she said was appeal allowed, convictions quashed, and then adjourned the court. The only other information that we have is that this was a unanimous decision by the full bench of the justices of the Australian High Court. They found that the jury hadn't properly considered all of the evidence at trial and that it had relied too heavily on the first-person evidence given by the alleged victim. And there was a reasonable possibility that offending hadn't taken place. By the time the media had found out, he'd already left prison. Really? Out the door. So is that it, Emile? No, no, not necessarily. The legal counsel for the alleged victim in this case says she has at least eight other civil claims ready to go against the Cardinal. Um, This also has really big implications for the media in Australia because this kicked off a really divisive and polarising storm in the media with, with actually pretty partisan reporting on really on both sides of that kind of question. And now journalists could actually face some charges for their reporting in this kind of case too. Let's take it local, because in early May, the headline came out that Young Act was under investigation. Now, this is obviously the youth arm of Act, the political party, and this investigation followed complaints of sexual harassment from its former vice president. Now, on the night of May the 6th, the vice president, Ali Gamata, tweeted this, Tonight I resigned as Vice President of Young Act. For months I have been sexually harassed, slut-shamed and ignored. I am not the only victim of this behaviour in our ranks. Gamata said that members of Young Act and their associates had been sexually harassing her and other female members of the youth wing online and in person for months. And she said their comments in her words, have been pretty disgusting and hurtful. It has been reported multiple times to the Young Act leadership and not a lot has been done. I think that I'm not the only one who feels like they've been ignored. So now Young Act's response has been to work on a new policy around sexual harassment and bullying, but it's also brought in an investigator, Andrea Twaddle, and that investigation is still going on. 
New Zealanders now know what they're voting for when the cannabis referendum comes up later this year, with the final version of the legislation bill released this morning. So uh, basically at the start of May, the government released the specific piece of legislation that we'll be voting on come election time when it comes to perspective legalisation of cannabis. Um, now, it's it's pretty straightforward when it comes to the question, do you support the proposed cannabis legislation and control bill? So it's going to be a yes or no, one and done, that's it. Uh, if it passes on September the 19th, though, Sharon, don't reach for the bong straight away. Okay. Yeah. Um, a bill will have to go through Parliament with all the bells and whistles and readings and public submissions and so on and so forth. And if it doesn't pass... That's it. The status quo Stop. remains. Marijuana will, will, will be an illegal black market product. The Israel election. Now, there are many astounding elements to this event, including the fact that there are actually three deadlocked elections and there is a year and a half of political, what they're calling political paralysis, um, and then another delay because of political infighting. But basically the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is back in power. Have a listen to this because it's a really good explanation of what happened. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and rival Benny Gantz signed an agreement on Monday to form an emergency coalition government, ending a year of political deadlock. Netanyahu's right-wing Likud and Gantz's Blue and White Party issued a joint statement saying they had signed a unity deal. It follows elections in April and September 2019, as well as last month, in which neither won a governing majority in Parliament. Official details of the power-sharing deal were not immediately disclosed. But a blue and white source said the two had agreed that Netanyahu would remain Prime Minister for a set period until Gantz takes over in October 2021. Until then, he'll take up the post of Defence Minister with several of his political allies to receive ministerial portfolios. Also astounding is the fact that Netanyahu, who has been in power for 11 years, is facing criminal charges of bribery, fraud and breach of trust in connection with three separate cases. And he's alleged to have accepted gifts from wealthy businessmen and dispensed favours to try to get more positive press coverage. Netanyahu has strongly denied any wrongdoing. He says it's a politically motivated witch hunt. And even if he's convicted, he would not be required to step down as Prime Minister until the appeals process is exhausted. A couple of really devastating cyclones hit during the coronavirus. We heard quite a bit about Harold. That was the 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 massive one which smashed through much of the Pacific. The extent of the damage Cyclone Harold has caused to Vanuatu is becoming clear, with assessment teams deployed across the islands today. And with COVID-19 a looming threat, there are concerns any much-needed help with the recovery will be delayed. I've really been comparing the damage to a tornado. This almost looks like things have been torn to little pieces. It's, it's exceptionally bad. Catastrophic is an understatement, Red Cross says, and satellite images show why. Once lush land has been stripped of crops and homes, leaving thousands in urgent need of shelter, water and food. And it caused $123 million of damage. And people who saw it, the Save the Children, those kind of agencies, non-government agencies who were there to um, see the damage, said it was 
immense and parts of some of these very remote places were absolutely flattened, um, water tanks knocked over, boats blown out of the water, trees stripped of their leaves and lots of roofs blown off in the storm. Um, in some communities on this remote island of Marlow, there are reports that not a single structure or building was free of damage. It's feared Vanuatu's efforts to stay COVID-free will delay the usual international efforts to offer relief. We're still working out whether or not humanitarian personnel will be able to come in the country, and if so, what are the testing and quarantine measures for that? So that was Cyclone Harold. Um, there was also Super Cyclone Amphan, and that was the, the massive storm which battered parts of India and Bangladesh in May, and that caused $13 billion worth of damage and killed 128 people. It hit West Bengal on Wednesday evening and then plundered through the state for hours. In the morning, this is what the region's biggest city looked like. Kolkata, ravaged by what many residents say is the worst storm they've experienced. Parts of the city are underwater, including the airport. Unfortunate. Everything gone. Places like Kolkata were just hit incredibly hard. And the thing was that there were two things going on, of course, two disasters. We had Cyclone Amphan and COVID-19 and in a place like India where there is so much poverty and poor infrastructure, poor health care, it was absolutely devastating. Another climate crisis that virtually got missed was something that happened in Australia. Now, as we know, bushfires were massive over there. They burned for, get this, more than 240 days, Mm. finally put out in early March, uh, two weeks of torrential rain, then flash floods. Uh, And in that time, 5.4 million hectares were burnt, including more than a third of New South Wales rainforests. And then... If that wasn't devastating enough, news that Australia's Great Barrier Reef suffered its worst coral bleaching event in March, and this is the third bleaching event in five years. Now, what happened was they went out and they surveyed uh, actually more than a 1,000 reefs within the Great Barrier Reef. And what they found was that for the first time, Severe bleaching had struck all three regions of the Great Barrier Reef, the northern, central and now large parts of the southern sectors. Um, And this was going on as February brought the the highest monthly sea temperatures on the reef since Australia started keeping records in 1900. Now, Professor Terry Hughes from James Cook University, he's in charge of the National Coral Bleaching Task Force, he said it was the saddest research trip of his life. So it's surprising. I think the speed of these um, events, we're going to see more of these bleaching events in the future, tragically. And the only way to secure a future for the world's coral reefs is to deal with greenhouse gas emissions. This might seem like a dumb question, but what is bleaching and why is it bad? Yeah, well, bleaching is what they call a phenomenon, and it occurs when corals um, get pretty much stressed out by the warm ocean temperatures, and they push out from their bodies algae that live within them and provide them with 
energy through photosynthesis. So that's a very, um, very quick science lesson about bleaching. But without the algae, the corals not only turn white, but they can die if the stresses continue long enough. And the other interesting thing that I've picked up about this is it's not just happening on the Great Barrier Reef, it's happening on coral reefs all over the world. And it's entirely connected to climate change. Uh, and, and of course this is devastating because the Great Barrier Reef is, is a world heritage site. You know, it's it's a home to 400 species of coral and 1,500 species of fish and it covers a massive area, 348,000 square kilometres. So, And that makes it the most extensive and, well, most spectacular coral reef ecosystem on the planet. Speaking of the natural world, there was there was actually there was another amazing story. This is actually connected to what you were talking about before with Cyclone Amphan in India. Except this doesn't didn't just affect India; it affected a bunch of countries um, across the equator. Really, plagues upon plagues of locusts in East Africa. The air carries two plagues. Locusts swarms with as many as 50 billion insects. As COVID-19 threatens the people, locusts threaten people's livestock and food. They are being a menace, eating our grass and even getting into our homes. When we slaughter our livestock, we find locust faces in their stomachs. Without a doubt, they are affecting our health, our animals' health, and the environment. In February, eight East African countries experienced an initial swarm, the largest for parts of the region in 70 years. And now a new wave is 20 times larger than the first wave. There are swarms that are, it's not uncommon to be, let's say, the size of, of Manhattan in, in New York City. Um, so, so they can be very big. Um, in one day, that swarm can eat the same amount of food as everybody in New York and California combined. The explosion in the locust population has been caused by unseasonably wet weather, which has allowed lots of generations of locusts to spawn in a really short period of time. And a lot of countries, particularly in East Africa, are being really horribly infested by this. The thing is, there isn't actually much that you can do about it in this situation. So is it just a case of, you know, waiting for them to disappear again? Well, they've tried out some unconventional methods of driving the locusts off. For example, authorities in India have been telling people to make lots of noise. So farmers have been taking their stereos out into the fields and blasting really loud music to try to scare the locusts away. And so they can actually hear? Yeah, the locusts can hear. <laughs> I know, above all the din, right? Yeah. And uh, residents of big cities in India as well have been encouraged to sort of honk their horns as they drive through cities to try and ward off these plagues of locusts darkening the skies, which, uh, to be fair, if you've ever been to India, is not that different from the default. Um, And one of the more extreme measures here, actually, is also uh, ducks, importing ducks, because a single duck can eat more than 200 locusts in a single day, which is much more effective than pesticides or chickens. So it's kind of a form of biosecurity control, and China is actually considering uh, deploying an army of 100,000 ducks in Pakistan to help them out. God, picture that, eh? Speaking of hostile insects uh, coming into places where they don't belong, the USA uh, has had a pretty rough time over the past couple of months, Sharon. A pretty confused response to COVID-19 has left them the world's biggest hotspot for cases and also for deaths and protests as well against police brutality, which have been spreading across the country uh, and ironically feature quite a lot of police brutality. So what they really didn't need was an invasion of Japanese murder hornets.
A massacre in the honeycombs. There were dead bees all over the front of the hive, all over the bottom board, and they all had, had all been chopped to bits. They were decapitated. Beekeeper Ted McFall says he went to check on a hive one morning in November and found an entire colony destroyed. 60,000 honeybees torn apart in a savage attack. About a month later, the alleged attacker was revealed. This Asian giant hornet found in Blaine, Washington, just a couple miles from McFall's property. And all it takes is a couple dozen of the Asian giant hornets to show up and start lopping off heads. Dubbed the murder hornet for its powerful sting and the way it decapitates its prey, this is the first time the world's largest hornet has been seen in the U.S. Washington State entomologist Chris Looney says the clock is ticking. The goal is to eradicate it now while the population is presumably small. The hornets also pose a threat to humans. Asian giant hornets kill around 30 to 50 people a year. And while Japanese bees have evolved to create self-defense systems, North American bees have no idea how to fight an alien predator like this. They're like the Terminator T-800 of the insect world. They are about the size of an adult thumb. Um, Now, this was originally reported in the New York Times, and a lot of people noted that the murder hornets followed in the footsteps of famine and pestilence and war, which will have some significance to readers of the Book of Revelation. Gosh, it's pretty grim out there. Was there any good news around? There was a little glimmer of hope out of Myanmar um, over the lockdown period when scientists in Myanmar excavated a lump of amber, a hundred million year old lump of amber, and contained within that lump of amber was a tiny, tiny little dinosaur, the smallest dinosaur ever discovered by human beings. And if you want to put a smile on your face, just listen to the excitement in this scientist's voice. When I first saw the specimen, I was completely blown away. You can see this beautiful little tiny bird skull preserved within this piece of amber. So I was going around showing it to everyone, like, look at this, it's so cool. To a paleontologist, it's weird. We've never seen anything like it. I definitely like couldn't keep the lid on this one. <laughs> it's a tiny little bird. It's about 1.5 centimeters long, but it's also kind of vicious. It has these great big bulbous eyes, which... Uh, are used to sort of locate prey and undergrowth, and it has a mouthful of really vicious, nasty, sharp teeth. So you wouldn't want to be stuck in an elevator with one. Sounds like a like a, a dinosaur version of the murder wasp. That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and supported by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can catch us every day through any podcast platform. And if you listen to us on Apple, please leave us a rating so other people can find us too. And this episode was engineered by Rangi Poak and produced by Alexia Russell. Kakite anō. Matewa. Mate